everyone, Tyler Weingarten here for Make Magazine. I'm joined by Mike Sinisi, uh, executive editor of Make Magazine, and uh, welcome to the latest edition or uh, episode of Meet the Maker. Today we are going to be joined by. Um, Get my switch ready here. Uh, David McGriffey. David, uh, what, what do you do? Uh, well, you're most recently the uh, author of the book Make Drones, which is a book that we publish. Um, uh, and uh, and what, what is that book about? Well, this book in particular, of course, is about making drones. I, I hope it's about a little more than that. One of the reasons... I think making drones is a good idea is because it's such a simple platform mechanically to learn about some of the concepts of robotics that go into the control systems. I, I'll admit my bias. I'm a programmer sort of first and foremost. And so the code was really my entry point to this. But of course, you have to build physical things to fly too. Right. And, and in particular, this book is about not about flying drones so much as about building your own. I mean, most people have seen drones like that, Phantoms and things like that. They're just mostly aerial cinematography platforms. But um, why would somebody want to build their own drone? You're right. My book does not try to be about piloting at all. I, you know, I was going to say surely that's out there. I must admit I haven't seen it yet. Maybe that's next. But I, I don't claim to be the world's greatest pilot. Uh, what really interested me here was exactly the building of them. And the reason I set out to build them, of course, the first drone I learned to fly was one I bought off the shelf. And um, it was a tiny little thing some guy brought into the office, a Cheerson CX-10, I believe it was. And it was very hard to fly because of the tiny controller. So I got a slightly bigger one, and then I got a bigger one. But before long, I have props. Hang on. And while he's getting those, I just want to uh, briefly talk about the, the format of the show. If you're watching this show live on Twitch, uh, while we're having a conversation with David, this conversation is also about you. So if you have any questions for David, uh, drop those into the chat and we will get those over to him. Uh, but in the meantime, David has something to show off to us here. If you, this is a off-the-shelf Cherson CX-20 drone. It's a it's a nice one because the off-the-shelf model still comes with an open-source control system. I forget which version, APM 2.56, something like that. Anyway, an APM open-source controller that all the best open-source uh, ground station software can work with, capable of fully autonomous missions. But that's all off-the-shelf. What it doesn't come with is this two-axis gimbal I've attached underneath, and the telemetry, this is the antenna to the internal telemetry transmitter, and then on the back, there is attached to the bottom, um, this is the video transmitter package. So this is kind of where I got my start in building drones, this is customizing this one, just as a lot of people you know, in cars might get started customizing a car instead of building one from scratch. And you know, to go a little bit further, this mounting plate where the shock mount goes didn't fit the bottom of this drone quite right. So this is a piece of Kydex thermoplastic that I just cut out with scissors, drilled a couple of holes in, and I'm often drone making. And so that got me into it. And I realized 
because of many other businesses I'm in. As I said, I'm a programmer, and I've programmed in a lot of different worlds. So the I, I recognized pretty quickly that many of the algorithms they'd be using on the inside of this drone were things I was already familiar with. Uh, for example, Kalman filters, one of my favorites, uh, PID controllers, and so forth. So once I got the bug, and I actually, I've, I've had the aviation bug all my life. My father flew small planes when I was a kid, and I've flown radio-controlled gliders, and I've piloted small planes. So really, if, if you ever see me in a bad mood and need to get me talking, just point at an airplane and say, what's that? It's a trick people learned long ago. <laughs> now, when we're starting to talk about, um, we have an interesting echo here. Um, hopefully that'll take care of it. Um, I wanted to ask, well, for anybody who is immediately looking at drones and quadcopters, um, I think one of the best ways to really start to kind of pull them apart and understand everything that's going on with them is just to understand what all the components on the multi-rotor vehicle are. So you, you started to get into that a little bit there, and I think this is really a, a, a significant portion of your book is in starting understanding what all the different components are and do. So if you want to take that uh, quadcopter right. you just had up and, and walk us through Hang it. on, just a second. Okay. I have a bit of that last sentence, but I have more control systems, just a sec. Excellent. Um, I always find interesting is how quickly I have, all of this has progressed. I, yeah. I, I guess we start at the outside sort of most obvious parts. Um, the motors in a small drone like this, and this looks like an off-the-shelf drone because the case and props and everything are, but this has a custom controller in it. Um, but the little motors look an awful lot like the motors I've been getting for uh, such a long time, I won't even mention it. And they're really a little different in that these don't have cores around their permanent magnets on the moving coil part. They're a permanent magnet on the outside, or inside is the case maybe in some. And so these are specifically built for aviation purposes where being a little less efficient but being lighter is useful. And so there's a bit of a development in these motors that is part of what makes drones possible. This is a brushless motor uh, specifically built for drones, which has a pretty powerful motor in it, magnet in it. Oh, well, that's not the one that's going to open for me. Um, if you can see inside these, they have static coils that are fixed to the frame, and then they're permanent magnets that spin around that. Interestingly, this style of motor, called a brushless motor, because it has no brushes to take the power to the coils, was first developed in floppy drives back in the, I guess it was early 80s is when I saw them. And if you take apart an old floppy drive far enough, you can find these beautiful copper-covered coils. Um, surprised you don't see more in steampunk jewelry or something. I think they're really cool looking. David, that so was we have one of the things in your book that actually took me by surprise. I didn't, um, I, I didn't know about the, the, the floppy drive brushless motor uh, heritage. And um, I was curious, are there people that are taking those brushless motors out of floppy drives and repurposing them into any of their own drone, quad, rotor, 
uh, I haven't creations. seen that in the quadcopter world, uh, where you do see people making custom electric motors is more in racing aircraft and occasionally cars. Uh, there's a whole world of people who do wind their own motors there. And I wouldn't be surprised if they take those cores out and reuse the iron part because, you know, they're perfectly spread for it. That's great. Okay, go on. More components. Uh, let's see. What's next? Um, is this the right box? Yes. So control systems, of course, being a programmer, are one of my favorite parts. And here's, this is kind of an, it'll come out of its little case, kind of an old control system. I haven't seen a lot of these out flying but again, this is a part that I wonder why people don't build more other projects with. This is a, a little Arduino light controller. It has an LCD screen, a bunch of connection pins on it, buttons. It comes with a buzzer. It already has the regulators to run off LiPo batteries. I think this one was under $10. They're certainly under $20 with a case. Really cheap parts. Uh, this is a KK2 controller for those of you who are interested in such things. Uh, the reason people really like this one, especially early in its day, is because of the screen and the buttons, you could completely calibrate your drone without having a computer or a smartphone. Now, today, most people have computers and smartphones, but still, maybe you don't want to take it out in the field with you. So it's a cute little controller. And there are so many kinds of controllers in the world. Um, that one's just great to know about just because uh, it's a, a programmable Arduino board that has the um, a display and an interface built into it with the, uh, the keypad and the, uh, the screen. Um, normally, you need to devote a bunch of pins and, and things like that to the, the screen and the buttons. So it's nice to have a board that has those all in, uh, included. And I think it's funny, too, David, you, you say back in the day... Um, which I think for the KK2 is, what, about 2012? Yeah, that one was probably that long ago. <laughs> Ancient times. I mean, I was also uh, looking over your book and looking into the, the code section and noticing that some of the code references in the book there still make reference to uh, the Nintendo Wii, uh, which I understand had some pretty significant um, contributions to uh, home-built quadcopters and multi-rotor vehicles. Um, if we don't mind to make a quick aside about that, can you talk about some of that evolution? Yeah, actually, it's funny. I have a coworker at a different job who used to fly big radio control helicopters and got into the quadcopters when they came out. And he was there in exactly that period when every time Walmart got a shipment of Wii controllers, he'd go buy them out just to take them apart and get the gyro chips. Because in the, the Wii and especially the nunchuck were, I think it was an accelerometer in the Wii controller and a gyro in the nunchuck. And they were, you know, expensive and rare enough to be separate in those days. And people were taking those circuits out and reusing them in drones to the point that there is a common drone operating system today called uh, MultiWii, which is based on that heritage. Uh, we don't really take Wii controllers apart anymore. And I can't remember. I think it's some of the same chips, however, we're still using. Um, if you can tell, I call this one the X4 Wii because, in fact, it has a MultiWii-based flight control system in it. And and was the Wii part of what made that technology become ubiquitous in, enough to become cheap? 
Yeah, I think so. That I mean, there were those gyro chips were being used all over pretty quickly. Cell phones have similar gyro chips. You know, when you tilt your cell phone, that's very similar technology internally to what makes a drone know where it is. Now they're um, optimized differently. The cell phone doesn't have to go very quickly, and so probably runs lower power, runs slower, different filters, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so let's get back to more of the anatomy of a of a quadcopter. Oh, yeah. I have um, another slightly newer generation control system. This is uh, ArduPilot. This is if anyone knows 3D Robotics. They're probably the second best known drone company today. Uh, they make, oh, what's their latest one? The Solo. Quite a nice thing, well integrated with the GoPro. Uh, this is an open source control system that they have had a lot to do with. It's not a 3DR product. Well, this one is physically a 3DR product, but the design is open source. This second part is a GPS. Another neat outcome of the cell phone world is you can get a little GPS board like this under $20, depending on how fast you need it to be, how many channels you want it to receive. The output is a standard serial protocol I describe in the book. It's really easy to parse in computer code. And so any project you want that might benefit from knowing where it is, it's really easy to put GPS on. And by the way, even if you only need time of day, it's one of the easiest ways to get the time of day. And so this is a next generation control system. The one on my big drone is actually slightly more sophisticated. That one's 8-bit. I'll show in a little while the one on the big drone, the S500, which is a 32-bit controller. And by this point, they have two gyros on them, two accelerometers, which might give you fail-safe. It at least gives you good diagnostics in my case. I'll tell a funny story about my bad gyro at some point, too. Um, let's see, we're going through components, and I did, ah, the one last component of what makes drones possible, do I have one handy, here's a tiny one, are batteries. Um, that's not a battery, that's a Bluetooth controller. Well, it's a fun component nonetheless. Let's see, is this what I think it is? Um, here is the little battery I was looking for. Yep, modern batteries just hold so much power and at least as important can give you all of that energy in a very short amount of time. Um, they can discharge at very high rates. These uh, LiPos or lithium polymer batteries, this is a very small one really, are a little bit finicky. Um, if you discharge them too low, they tend to puff up. And once they're messed up like that, if you then try to charge them or charge them too quickly or too high, they've been known to catch fire. I haven't actually had that happen to me, but I know friends who like would always put them in an ammo box to charge just in case. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I was um, so, I was going to ask about that uh, in particular. If you had any of those explosive failures with with battery charging, I get nervous every time. Even though I'm, I think I've got a battery charging on my kitchen counter right now. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I haven't. I pardon. I. I do try to be careful never to leave a lipo charging when I'm not there watching it. Um, most other batteries, the nickel metal hydrides and the lithium ion batteries are all fine. They're very safe technologies. And these lipos, if you take good care of them, are generally fine. The people I know have really had trouble. It's usually a combination of, well, it was kind of, I pushed it, and then I was in a crash which punctured it. Right, right. So a few batteries take that well, but yeah. they... 
can be a little more extravagant, the LiPos. And then you've got the Samsung. Yeah, the, the, all the stories oh, recently about the, the Galaxy Note 7 and, uh, of course, all the um, the hoverboards that Amazon decided to stop selling because uh, they were all catching on fire as well. And um, I never really understood if that was poor battery design or poor charging design uh, with those or just bad quality control all around. Yeah, the, the those aren't mostly lithium polymer. I mean, I think the hoverboards may be, but the cell phones weren't, I don't think. I think that was lithium ion, which are normally much safer, but all of them have to have careful chargers that ramp down as they get close to their maximum and never go over a certain point. And if you treat them wrong, any of them can, I mean, the, just the raw energy density is getting so high. Yeah. So you were mentioning uh, code earlier and how your your background as a programmer um, is what led you down this path of, of building your own quadcopters. And so if you're going to get um, if you're going to start down this path, like how much code should you know before starting out? And uh, assuming that, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't come from a programming background wants to get into this. Uh, and I guess the other side of this, or what are some of the immediate applications for anybody who does love getting into the code uh, to start playing around with this stuff? Um, I would say near no coding knowledge is required. You certainly don't have to write a new control system to build a drone. I happen to want to, but... You can take an off-the-shelf drone control system and, I mean, you can buy an off-the-shelf controller like the ones I was showing and load your uh, load stock code on it and, depending on the drone, maybe not even adjust very many parameters. You should never have to write lines of code. You may, if it's a new physical design, have to go tweak some of the flight parameters like PID tuning and the radio control rates and things like that. Um, uh, that's fairly drone-specific, not so much code-specific. On the other side of the question, for the people who do like to code, oh, there are so many opportunities. Uh, there are some, uh, there must be half a dozen major drone control system projects out there, and like some of them don't do automated waypoints yet, and that's a thing they could have added. Uh, there's a lot of work going on in things like computer vision today where drones, of course, use GPS to know where they are, and they all carry cameras, but the drones, outside of academia for the most part, don't use cameras to see where they are, uh, what in VR you would call inside-out tracking. Uh, I have seen academic, uh, it was fixed-wing aircraft, but flying based on a camera they were looking through, and looks very interesting, and the VR technology, especially actually augmented reality technology, which is something else I do, by the way, if anyone's interested, now the audio side of that, um, it's going to have a lot to do uh, with this drone technology. There's a project I saw at a VR demo called uh, Google Project Tango. And it's about taking something like an Xbox Connect camera, a distance measuring camera, attach it to the back of a tablet, wander around, and it maps the world. Well, of course, that's exactly what you'd need to fly a drone around that world. It's just not quite fast enough yet. So, well, I was off on a tangent there about control systems. I, did I answer the original? Oh, opportunities to code. Yes, there are many fun opportunities to code. Aside from what I did, I, I wrote for this drone in particular. I wrote the control system that this one runs. And I must admit, it's not the best flyer of the bunch. That wasn't really the point. The existing control systems fly very well. The point was for me to learn about, well, 
exactly how does that algorithm work? And one of the ways I learn is to do. So that's what I did. David, one of the things um, in, in the uh, introduction to your book, you talk about how you got to where you are because of your upbringing. Your dad um, basically handed you a soldering iron when you were born. And uh, he was a ham radio enthusiast. It's funny because it sounds very similar to a lot of uh, the things that I went through then. Uh, you, you got into music, which has uh, a lot of crossover, especially when you start looking at um, and some of the digital signal processing, et cetera. Tell everyone about this. You know, what, was, what were those earliest years that got you to the point where then you learned the programming and then you're now thinking about programming your own drone controller? Well, yeah, when I was a kid, my father was into ham radio, and he was also a physics professor, so I'd occasionally get to go tour the big physics experiments here at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, you know, I've seen a nuclear reactor run, and uh, which is beautiful, by the way. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, but at home, he would, you know, he collected all his equipment and connect, put it together into the ham shack everyone had in those days. And he, he was mostly talking to friends around town, but that meant they had to put up repeaters and they'd climb the antennas. That looked fun. Uh, transmitter hunting was a thing we did when I was young. I just, you'd get arrested for it today, I'm sure. But you, they had these custom directional antennas that you'd stick out the window of the car. Somebody would go hide and turn on their transmitter. And then we'd all try and drive to them by just radio location, which they actually got extremely good at. It was amazing. Um, so it's like a super geeky hide and seek? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine today if you're driving around town with this big weird homemade antenna sticking out your car window? They'd at least want to ask. <laughs> right, they certainly would. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, there was a, a, a concept of playing with high-tech toys. And, oh, I had those little Radio Shack 101 project kits that you do with the wires and springs. I um, See, I built a Z80 computer on a breadboard in about 78, 79, somewhere back there. Played with computers just as soon as I could get any time on them at all, which goes back to paper terminals and storing on paper tape. Um, and... Kind of along with this, on my mom's side was, not only is that where the music comes from, um, but she was always making things. Like, I remember she, we had the little Batmobile we, toys we got, but then she made the whole Bat cave for that to go into. And between the two was this idea that, yeah, you just pick up a tool if that's what's needed to do the job. I love that. That's yeah. great. Somehow oh, and... To go forward a little bit, another place I really got that from, uh, right at the end of that period, I played in a punk rock band. This was like 79, 80, 81. And there's a very strong ethos in the punk world of go start your own band. So the, this sense of, yes, everyone can do this. This isn't stars entertaining everyone else. Yeah, and also along with that is, you know, go, uh, not only go, to start your own band, but maybe start you know messing with your equipment to get more of the sound that you want out of it. Um, I knew, you know, constant people, had, you know, being in bands of you know people had just you know made their own guitars out of just blocks of wood. Maybe they didn't sound that great, but uh, you know it was theirs. They owned it, and you know other silly hacks like you know one of the guys uh, that was in a band that I played with, he just attach a bunch of skateboard trucks to the side of his amp so that you know he could just tip it over on its side and then wheel it off stage when you know make it easier to move around when he was uh, uh, when he was done playing. You know, just fun little things like that. 
Yeah, that maker DIY yeah. crossover with the music world. It's 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 really strong and it's really great. Yeah. Yeah, and then the electronic world, especially, there's a strong circuit bending tradition. Uh, being the electronics geek, I got into synthesizers just as early as I could. Bought a Korg MS20 when they were brand new. Um, and, you know, the circuit hacking, just taking any old thing and using it any way you can think of to make some different noise was so acceptable then and to some extent still is. So going through your book... Um Okay, so you want to build a drone, and I've seen things as as complicated as you know, custom you know water uh, or laser cut carbon fiber parts, and I've also seen stuff as simple as like here's some basic wood parts you buy at the hardware store. Um, where do, what do you need to start with to to get going? Other than the electronics, that the motors, the IMUs, and the control system, and things like that. Um, as you may have noticed, if you look through the drones I've built, these and I'll show the larger one here in a sec, are based on off-the-shelf frames. And that's basically because I'm not yet into 3D printing. I've been avoiding that world. Soon it's coming. But um, And I'm not the greatest at mechanical construction. Electronics and code is my forte. So that's the part I chose to customize. If electronics and code is something you kind of know you have to have, but you really want to build this custom frame that looks really cool out of some material you just learned about, well, you can do that too. Uh, drones, it turns out I built some strange ones. Oh, let me pull this one. Ah, knocked my table over. This is one of the first ones I sort of built from scratch. I don't know if you can tell. That's in an Altoids tin. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, I decided I wanted to make an Altoids tin fly. This is now flying over this really cute carbon fiber birch plywood frame that I got online for 20 bucks. I was originally flying on a frame I made of cut out and bent kydex, because that's a technology I'd been working with my daughter who does cosplay with. And you know, you take what technologies you have around the house. I had kydex and heat guns, so I made a drone frame out of kydex and heat guns. And I later figured out that getting the motors to actually stick all the same direction and stay that way kind of matters. The drone can compensate, but if it has to compensate and it's losing 10% on this motor, then it has to lose 10% on the others to compensate for that, and now you've lost 10% all round just because this is pointing a little off. And you can't really afford to lose that much, especially this. the Altoids tin is really too heavy, but it does fly. <laughs> Have you um, put any Altoids so, inside of that one? Do you have any Altoid delivery? I, I haven't really managed much Altoid delivery, uh, but at the time there's a battery in here, there's probably only room for one or two. <laughs> but this is one of my favorite little controllers. Uh, don't know if you can tell. The controller does not even fill up the space in here. It is the tiniest little thing. That board has a 32-bit processor, a 6-axis gyro accelerometer, and a radio control receiver, four single-fat motor drivers, everything you need, all the electronics of the drone. And this is what I mean. If electronics isn't your thing, this board is $30. You go buy it. You connect the motors. You're flying. Yeah. And and for anybody who is uh, listening to this later on uh, in the podcast version, that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that isn't the full-size Altoids tin. That was the, uh, the little Altoids oh. gum tin. Yes, yes. That's the small one. The big yeah. one was going to take bigger motors and a whole different thing that I wanted to go to. That's entirely different class of quadcopter. And David, and in fact, I'm cheating by keeping the lid off because the dang lid weighs six grams. <laughs> what, what is that flight controller board, by the way? 
It's the Pico 32. Um, you can get it at several different places. It has another name where they sell it at um, Hobby King. I think mine is the Hobby King version, but there are others out there too. I want to go back to a point that you were just talking about there where uh, you were mentioning that if the, the motor gets slightly off angle, um, that, you know, I mean, if I were approaching this, I'd think, okay, I need to have all these motors rigidly mounted. I need to make sure that they're all, uh, you know, connected at the right angle and, you know, pointed directly straight up. But you were mentioning that the, the flight controller will actually uh, adapt for it if, you know, the motor, you know, gets slightly off angle or just, you know, isn't outputting as much thrust as the rest of the motors do. And, and how, how is it doing that? Um, yeah, it's actually pretty normal, especially in these smaller motors. Uh, the lifetime is not very good. The factory spec lifetime is five to eight hours. So they wear out pretty quickly, and it's common to be flying with one that's a little weak. So if a drone is, you know, hovering level, the four motors will be putting out the same amount of thrust. If one of them's pointed a little bit off, that will, first of all, reduce how much is going up. So to keep the same amount of upward thrust, we have to compensate a little bit down on the others. That's probably also going to make it turn, uh, yaw, that way. And so you'd have to take one of the others, and well, you, the computer, of course, can't twist that one. What it's going to have to do is, if this one's spinning clockwise or trying to make it twist clockwise, it will put a little more torque on the two that are spinning counterclockwise in order to for the counter torque to reverse that. That's how a drone yaws in any case, is two of the motors spin clockwise, two counterclockwise, and it changes the relative torque of the two pairs. So it's doing that not even necessarily by understanding what the motor is doing, but rather just from the overall uh, feedback from the, the attitude of the aircraft, it goes, okay, well, uh, we're drifting slightly off axis or, or you know, slightly to the left or right. Now I need to compensate for that because I don't have any control input for that. I should be staying right where I am. Yeah, it's a closed loop, including the drone and the gyros and the whole body of it moving. It's that whole system that is the control loop. Yeah, and you're getting that just from the uh, the the gyroscope and the accelerometer, correct? You don't need a GPS for uh, for that kind of uh, flight adjustment. Right. Quadcopters in this range generally don't carry a GPS. I've seen one around this size that does, which looks really fun, but uh, usually they don't. It's what's called six axis. That is three axes for the accelerometer and three more for the uh, gyros. And, and so... Uh, and so when we're talking about, um, obviously that's talking about relative drift of the aircraft, but if it's in a, like a heavy wind that might blow it around, uh, is, are these flight controllers able to compensate for, for that? No, the six axis controller can't directly. Um, it's possible to do a little bit by what's called inertial. I mean, this is all in one broad sense, inertial navigation, but there's a, a narrow sense of the term, which means if you the wind pushes you, you can tell that you were accelerated. So theoretically, you could integrate the output of the accelerometer and correct for that. And in fact, advanced drones do that to hold altitude better because uh, altimeters are kind of noisy. And so that helps give you the fine control of the altitude. But no, as far as I know, no one's trying to do that to correct for wind. You correct for wind with GPS. Right. 
that at least that's been my experience of flying the the bigger quadcopters that uh 3d robotics and the uh the fandoms is that you know when they start adding gps into their uh the aircraft overall gets a lot more stable particularly in higher winds you don't feel like you're gonna blow the, the quadcopter over to the neighbor's yard or lose track of it yeah, it's, it can be feel much safer to fly once it's running well, and especially the modern fast ones that use both the American and Russian satellites. I'm usually tracking 16 by the time I'm flying. Um, another thing they have in the latest DJI models and some others. Did I bring that box of stuff? I don't see it handy. I won't stop to look. Uh, it's an optical flow sensor. Uh, again, this is one of those technologies that comes from very simple things. Years ago, they developed the optical mouse. And the better ones, the way they're working is they take a picture of what's under there and then take the next picture and correlate them to see which way it moved. And you can do that same thing looking down from the drone at the ground when you're close enough. And it makes for very stable flight when you're in close to the ground. This is how they do the precision landing work. One trick is if the drone tilts, then the angle the thing's looking at moves that looks the same as motion, so you have to use gyros and very accurate altitude to correct for that effect in order to then use the remainder to find out how much you are really moving. Uh, historically, the Parrot AR drone was one of the first to really make good use of this technology, and they, that's why they seem so magically stable even indoors. This is especially what works well indoors. Right. I actually have a, a goofy aside question about that. Uh, going back to optical mouse uh, sensor technologies, uh, maybe you know the answer to it. Is that I find even though they're using these optical sensors, why is it that uh, a mouse over a relatively um, normalized uh, pattern like a mouse pad tracks so much better than over something like you know with a much more varied pattern like a, a bare wood surface or even something with a picture on it? I. You know, I am confused by that, too, I must admit. I, I need to go learn more about this the optical side of the world, because as I said earlier, I think the tracking cameras are going to start to be a part of this world. But I no, all I can say is I'm with you. I don't understand which surfaces seem to be good for the optical mice. Because it seems to me that the, something with a more varied pattern would, is going to... Uh, it's going to be able to visually identify much better where it is in that that than something with a, a relatively normalized and, and similar pattern throughout. But Yeah, I think one trick is it's using a very fine part of the pattern. It's not really looking at the overall picture to recognize this whole picture has shifted left. It's looking at small correlations that look three pixels over is the same as this pixel. Right. Hey, David, the, um, for this optical flow uh, concept, how how far into the DIY drone world has that gone? Um, you know, I, I know the Parade AR drones had it uh, a number of years ago. Um, it's something that they're, they're still incorporating. I think that the, um, the DJI yes. machines are using it. But... Um, are there are there hobbyists that are building their own their own rigs uh, that have those downward facing cameras in them? Yes, there certainly are. I have one sitting in a box somewhere. I must have left it in the house. Um, you can buy just an off the shelf. Um, various quality. You can either literally use the same part that goes into a mouse, and there are some of the open shelf uh, flight control systems that can use that. Uh, then there's a somewhat better model that's come out, and it's not cheap. It's a couple hundred bucks, um, but apparently does very well. Strangely, the hard part at the moment is getting the altitude right. Uh, the DJIs do this with ultrasonic sensors, 
It's another part. Uh, no, that's in another bag. Uh, if you, people have seen those little, what is it, an HCS06 or something, it's a little ultrasonic pinger that's used in so many Arduino projects. You see that very same part in the bottom of the DJI Phantoms, and they're using that for the close, accurate altitude to go with the optical flow sensor. And in fact, they make a slightly better ultrasonic pinger that often comes bundled with the hobbyist optical flow sensors. However, the people doing the software say uh, all of those ultrasonics are really too noisy, and to some extent they're right. And so what they prefer is what's called a LiDAR light, or really any LiDAR system, but there's a particular one called LiDAR Light 2, which was fairly cheap, I forget, 100 bucks, worked really well, light and small enough to put on a drone, except you couldn't get them for a long time. And the company was purchased by someone else. I believe they may be available again now. Uh, but that was a problem with doing this as a hobbyist for a year or two there. Um, but certainly today, you can buy off-the-shelf the sensor and another off-the-shelf LiDAR, if not that one, and integrate this into existing software on the open-source flight control systems. You really don't even have to write the code. Now, you have to be the kind of guy that's willing to go out and say, well, I have to have the very latest version of the flight control code, and for that, I have to download this other thing, and I'm going to flash the code on this, and oh, look, this serial cable's backwards. I'm going to have to switch the pins on that to get it to talk to this. And It's not a, it's still a DI project which you know if you didn't want that go by the fandom they fly really well <laughs> and so uh, for the people that uh, aren't familiar with lidar uh, do you want to explain what it is and how it works uh, LIDAR is uh, light, dis light imaging distance ranging something I forget the acronym but basically it is a finding the distance to something by shining a point of light on it. And the way most of these are working, all the really good ones, is by timing the, how long that pulse of light takes to go there and back. It is literally sends a very short pulse of laser light out, it hits some target, the light reflects back, and it is taking, measuring the amount of time that round trip took at the speed of light. So this is very short amounts of time. They've got it down to where they can measure, I think to millimeters, certainly centimeters, very accurately. And so in the case of this LiDAR light, it's just doing a single point and a single beam, and it gives you a direct distance for altitude. You can see a similar technology in like something you might use a carpenter to measure a distance of a wall or something. Much more fun, they make scanning LiDAR systems Systems, where it's the same idea except the lasers scanning and spanning the whole environment and measuring the distance. And then you get what's called a point cloud. You can measure the distance to everything in your environment. One of the really fun applications I've heard of for this is they'll fly a drone over an area, say, in Central America. I know they do this with, where there's an architectural site. And it's all jungle covered, so if you just take aerial photos, you see trees. But it turns out little bits of the laser light do make it to the jungle floor through the trees, and you can measure those and start to get an accurate picture of what the flat part of the floor looks like. Well, in the flat part of that jungle floor, they find these rectangular, regular shapes that they hadn't been able to see before, and they're able to now map what amount to the suburbs of the previous big cities they had been unearthing. That's great. That's I love incredible. that. <laughs> Um, I, it's, I, I know other people using LiDAR, like the permaculture crowd is using it to accurately measure topology, to get the drainage patterns, find drainage on a property correct or change it where they need to. Very useful stuff. And I know that the scanning LiDAR is a big part of um, a lot of the self-driving car uh, initiatives. Yeah. But what I find interesting is that it's not 
part of the current fleet of Tesla self-driving cars. They're doing everything with cameras and and radar units. Um, I think that there's some talk about them incorporating LiDAR at some point, but um, I'm watching as that technology, uh, as it continues to mature and it continues to decrease in price, I think we're getting to the point where you can get a scanning LiDAR for uh, like like a 16 unit laser unit for like eight thousand from one of the Velodyne units. Yeah, they're coming down. I'm I will have one before long. That looks like fun business. But I uh, I know I was at actually it was our local Maker Fair last year. There was a big truck set up from. Oh, now I'm going to forget the name of the company. Poor company. And he was so nice to me. He gave me prototypes and everything. Um, it's formerly AMD Silicon, now merged with someone else. And among other things, uh, they were making these tiny little phased array radar systems for use in car tracking, like smart car systems. And I remember back in the day, I was working on GPS long years ago when they were just launching the satellites. And one of the applications I worked on was a system for the Navy that they were putting on this research that had a phased array radar system for tracking Soviet missiles. And it was literally a battleship turret worth of antennas and a supercomputer that was big enough it took up a whole floor in the basement of the ship. And today, we can get the phased array radar on a tiny little chip that could run on a battery and just as sort of a gimme in the front of your car. I haven't actually seen that on a drone yet, though I'm not sure why. That's, that's some really good stuff. Um, I do want to take a moment to remind everybody watching this live that if you have any questions for David about drones, quadcopters, and other aerial flying systems, uh, just fire those off in the chat and we'll get those over to him. But in the meantime, I wanted to uh, take a moment to talk about, well, something I care about an awful lot um, with uh, quadcopters and something that a lot of the other hobbyists do is uh, uh, camera systems and how they can integrate with, um, with the flying vehicles like this. Um, it would, would, uh, if you want to get started in aerial cinematography or even like FPV drone racing, like what kind of camera systems are you looking at there? I mean, obviously those are two very opposite ends of the spectrum and, and, and what are some of the needs and interests there? Um, yeah, well, it seems like every drone carries a camera these days. You can go to Fry's or wherever, and they have hundreds of drones with HD cameras. Now, most of these, of course, are about as HD as your cell phone is. Having said that, some cell phones are pretty good these days, so some of these drones are okay. Um, if you want to get a little better, um, here, my other camera isn't actually working. I mean, so, yeah, we, we live in a, a YouTube and live streaming world now. If you're, if you're doing anything yeah. interesting, you better have footage of it. Right. This is my action cam that I usually fly, and I'll, maybe this is a good time to drag out the big drone it flies on. This, see, get that next to me so you can see scale. This is 480 millimeters arm to arm. And then, I don't know, it's a little confusing with all the wires, but there is a three-axis gimbal on this one. My previous one was only a two-axis gimbal. This also does yaw, so as the drone corrects that way, it keeps it facing the same direction. And this is just an off the shelf, this isn't even a real GoPro, this is a what, Hawkeye Firefly, but it's a 4K capable action cam. Um, they're all about the same size, shape and weight, so it's really you know under 100 bucks. Takes really pretty good video. It's very wide angle, so you know, this is only going to get you certain things. Uh, this is probably good enough for real estate level work. If you're really going to go shoot feature films, they're going to use bigger than that. Uh, basically, uh, like my 
SLR camera. I just recently got a Panasonic GH4 for making videos of drones and things. And if you get up to a, a six or eight motor uh, hex or octocopter, they get big enough to actually carry the smaller DSLRs. And so that's what the guys in Hollywood are going to be flying and shooting these days, if not better. You know. Oh, and one other thing I was going to show. Right, not too – well, actually, it was a little while ago now, especially in, in drone evolution times. I was chatting with the uh, guys from an aerial cinematography company, Drone Dudes, and they uh, they have a octocopter that flies with a, a red – a carbon fiber uh, red camera. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that – Vehicle has an overall like twenty-seven pound payload, and I think the camera is like sixteen. Pounds right. Of it, but. I, sure. I mean, someone's going to fly several Reds or several Re's or something these days. But I, I'm not quite in that income bracket. No. I, I mean, get this. This is Samsung Gear 360. It's a full 360 still in video camera, and I have every intention of dragging this under a drone somehow. I, I didn't go with it for various reasons, but an interesting competitor to this is the Kodak. And it's not quite a 360 camera, but it pairs in two of them to make one, which means you can put one on the top of the drone and one on the bottom. And they make a special strap for doing this. So it's an easy way to take full 360 VR video without the drone in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you still see some of the props in the middle of there. Maybe, I guess, depending on how you mount it, you might not. Yeah, I, I, they're far enough apart that if you get very close to it, you probably have weird parallax problems. But for anything in the distance, which is what you're usually shooting with the drone, it seems to look pretty good. That's yeah. really cool. I, I, I'm now curious to look and try to find some of those the, the Kodak-generated videos. That sounds really neat. Yeah. Uh, do they have any samples of, or anything that, that people can, can go and check out? Um, I don't know that you all run right off, but boy, they're missing a bet if they don't, right? Right. Um, and let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Do you have any experience with like FPV systems for um, people use for drone racing or just uh, for piloting the vehicle when they're uh, when the vehicle's out of line of sight? Well, I, I know enough to talk about them, but I don't want to claim I'm that kind of pilot. Right. Those people are so good at that. Looks like great, great fun. I will learn to do that someday. But um, the gear, um, some parts of it are fairly common. Like, let's see if I can get this to where you can see it. Um, this component here is a video transmitter. Uh, and that and its matching antenna here in the back. If you see these mushroom-looking antennas, that's often the video transmitter, although this one appears the GPS. Um, that gear is just about the same as you would find on a FPV quadcopter. Uh, but the cameras tend to be very different. The, they tend to be very small, more like the security camera stuff. They don't they have surprisingly poor resolution. That doesn't seem to be the issue. The thing that, two things, they need pretty good dynamic range going light to dark, and they have to be able to adapt light to dark fairly quickly, if, like you're, say, going from sunlight in a building, like they fly through old buildings. Um, but the thing they really need is low latency. A camera like this, you know, it has an output. I take this output and connect it through that video system, but it's it's actually going through some computers on the way. And especially if you take um, like a standard GoPro with its Wi-Fi connection, sure, that'll transmit down to the ground, but there's 
you know, full second of latency, and you can't fly that way. And so it, the video systems they use in FPV flying are entirely analog, which interestingly means anyone else at the field can tune an analog receiver to the same frequency and see exactly what the pilot's seeing. Right. I mean, that's often a, a problem where, you know, if somebody brings a, a another vehicle, you know, a, 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 and then particularly their, their video transport system online, you can end up seeing what that other quadcopter that's still on the ground is seeing when you're otherwise flying and seeing the view from your quadcopter. So, uh, always uh, a tricky thing of you know making sure everybody's coordinated before you turn a, a camera transmission system on. Right. Yeah, it used to be in the old radio control world. We all had that with our transmitters. You'd put a little flag on your transmitter. I'm on channel 27, and you're always supposed to look around before powering up. And our modern 2.4 gigahertz transmitters don't have much trouble with that. I've seen lots of people on one field without collisions. But as you say, the video transmitters still do have such issues, and you have to be careful. So it seems to me that, um, and, and I don't know if it's the case right now because the technology and the community is moving so quick, but the the best FPV videos that you watch actually come from an action camera that's mounted on, yes. the, on the rig. They're flying FPV through one of those keychain security cameras, but they're recording on a, a separate camera system. Just so. As I said, the, the FPV cameras are often too low resolution to really make a very good video. So they um, will use a GoPro or something on top separately to record it for fun. And we're actually seeing the sort of the professional end of this uh, with uh, Phantom or DJI's most recent announcement of the Inspire 2, uh, because that's a, uh, I mean, that's their semi professional uh, aerial camera system, okay. and that has two cameras on it now uh, with the intention of that you have two operators for the, the vehicle. You have a, a pilot and a camera operator. One camera is there for the pilot to be able to see what the vehicle is doing at any given time, and then completely freeing up the secondary camera for the camera operator to, to get the shot with. Um, but Yeah, they've had two system operation available for a while where you have a second transmitter operating just the camera. But I don't think they came built in with two cameras. So I know it could be confusing when the camera operator's panning around to get the shot. The pilot's going, um, um, can I see where I'm going for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> now they don't have to uh, have that argument anymore and, and also enables them to fly somewhere you know, out of necessary immediate line of sight of, of the pilot. Right, which isn't actually legal yet, except under special conditions, I believe. But, it, you know, it does happen by accident occasionally. It can certainly save you to bring the drone back. Yeah. Well, and again, under, um, you know, uh, the conditions that cinematographers are, you know, might be flying this under, it might be not necessarily strictly legal, but under controlled enough conditions that it would be uh, fine and yeah, safe and to I, do so. You know, anybody who's going to be below the thing is going to be uh, involved with a production shooting and understands yeah, the I, risks. I believe they have exceptions explicit for the FPV races. I know the FAA is there and condoning this activity when it's happening in general. So uh, they're running the same FAA people at the drone races that they run at the big aircraft races and things. So, you know, they're taking it pretty seriously, but they're also helping it to happen. So I don't think they're trying to stop anything. Yeah. Um, I also, if you if you have any experience in this, I'd love to touch briefly on fixed wing uh, and manned aerial vehicles. Do you do you have any? Uh, I, I've seen a couple of things from those, uh, particularly in the the FPV world, and I've always been fascinated by it. Um, not only because you get 
uh, a lot more longevity for your battery. They can fly further ranges and, and longer times, but also the footage you see from them also just looks really cool because this you know big graceful you know flying movement. Yeah, and for the reasons you just state, I think the the serious aerial mapping people are often using fixed wing these days. If you're really going to survey a large area, the longevity makes a difference. And for, if you've got any altitude, it's a better platform, I think. Um, I've, I've flown fixed wing some in the past, particularly radio control gliders, and I've flown fixed wing human carrying aircraft and gliders. I, I love the feel of you know, it, it's so graceful to go cooperate, especially in a glider. You really have to cooperate with the air to get where you want to be and understand what it's doing and so much more about the aerodynamics. Where, you know, a drone, one of the reasons it's good for learning about control systems is you're up here, you want to be down there, well, you go there. If you're up here in a fixed wing plane, you have to think, let's see, what's my turn radius? What's my speed? Can I get by banking one circle or do I have to do a big, you know, there's, in a drone, there's no strategy. There's only tactics. And it, for the opposite reason, sometimes fixed wing is fun too. I fully expect to get back into fixed wing flying. The, the nice thing about the drone is I can step out in my front yard and fly. Right. I don't know that I have room for a very big fixed wing plane. Yeah, you need a you need a much bigger space to to fly around in for for fixed wing, but uh, it yeah. is really cool looking stuff. Yeah, and and I think but they have such designs today. I mean, the, a lot of things are these uh, flying wing designs that work so well, uh, and they're really easy to build and fly, nearly indestructible. They're great stuff. I think one of the things that you said in the book that you put really um, eloquently was about how. Um, when we talk about drones, we eliminate all of the complicated mechanics and everything. I mean, you basically you come down to a very, very simple system that does whatever you want it to do. Yeah, I mean, if you take a, a drone like this, the only part that moves are the props and the little bit of motor they're connected to. There are no servos, no control linkages, no aerodynamic surfaces. Um, we've substituted control system for all of the mechanics. And I was talking to a friend who used to also fly helicopters and flies drones now, and said, but, but man, they're so mechanically complicated. Why, why did you ever fly that? And he said, well, that's exactly why. Sometimes more complicated is fun. But it depends on what you're up to. I wanted to try implementing, you again, being a programmer, try implementing some of these algorithms I'd learned about. Like I, a strange past job I was in, I, I worked on the control systems of offshore oil rigs. And you see there the PID algorithms, the same thing that do smoothing of, you know, keep this from oscillating and moving smoothly, is the same thing they'll use to control the giant robots that move around on a drilling rig. And so I'd seen these algorithms, and I was curious to see if I could really put it together and understand it. And I think because there's no pesky mechanical parts, it's a great platform for understanding. Now, getting back into the some of the programming stuff uh, here, what do you see? Um, a, I mean, you, you were talking about earlier some of the applications you want to get into is you know flight control systems. Um, but what do you see are some of the applications of completely unmanned systems? So you know ones where there is no human controller, and, and you know some of the the programming aspects are there, and, and any areas you would like to explore with that. Well, you know, average drones, this drone is capable of completely autonomous flight. Uh, I rarely do the takeoff and landing automatically, but it can. You can set it on the ground, hit go on the smartphone, and have it do the whole flight and come back. 
And it's pretty easy for a drone at this level to do that. And I suspect, just as we're starting to do that with unmanned cars, you know, you could tell your Google self-driving car, take me to the grocery store, and it can get out of your parking lot and into its parking lot. I think we'll end up with human carrying automatic planes at some point with some of this technology. But, And this is something I learned, again, in the oil business, strangely. If human life is at risk, the whole process is different. The kind of code that a bunch of open source people got together and wrote that runs this drone, you wouldn't really want to put your life in that code's hands. And so, I mean, there are standards that start with your project management plan and risk assessment methodologies. And this is some of the things I used to do is failure mode effects analysis for large control systems. So there, there's a whole level of testing and design work that has to go into these things. And we're starting to see it. For example, um, hardware loop testing, where you take your control system, but instead of a real motor, you just put a fake load and then something else that uh, feeds back to the gyros what that load might have done, and you can test your device without really flying it. They use this all over the place in large industry, like, you know, every anti-lock brake system will be tested without actually moving a car before it's tried that way. And you can do this today using this open source flight control system and another open source flight simulator. It's a flying game where you take your joysticks at home and you fly around on your computer, but you can make the flight control system talk to that game and fly the drone around in a form of hardware and loop simulation. And these are the steps towards that level of real safety we're going to have to have. Yeah, and obviously we're starting to get into some of the topics around that, coming back into the discussion about self-driving cars, um, you know, because we are seeing uh, those those technologies start to take form, and obviously those are ones where you know safety of human life is uh, one of the big questions there. And and I imagine somewhere in those systems, uh, I I could be wrong, uh, that there is some open source code I- involved in there because there's a lot of people involved in those projects. There's a lot of open source projects uh, that are involved with those. Um, I was actually just uh, introduced to. Uh, yeah, some some side reading on the topic. Uh, the sci-fi author Cory Doctorow, he also writes for, writes for for Boing Boing, sure. uh, just wrote uh, this kind of interactive short story kind of thing called Car Wars that starts to get into some of the uh, social and technological interleavings of, of self-driving cars and what it's going to mean for us. If you uh, highly recommend it, although I haven't I haven't quite finished uh, reading through it just yet. Um, but yeah, there's a there is a lot of really fascinating topics there of like ethics of of you know self driving cars and you know do you uh, take out the motorcyclist to preserve the life of the bus full of kids or you know something you know just tough choices like that that nobody ever has to make or nobody wants to make and then we shrug our as humans we shrug our shoulders and say well that's a tough choice i'm glad i didn't have to make it but uh right and and we'll have easier ones along the way to get started like um, an application sort of seems obvious to me you know those cameras that are always over football games on wires well that could easily be a drone as soon as we feel safe enough to fly a 20 pound drone over a crowd of people right we're close. They need to get a little better. I, I understand that in Europe, commercial drones over a certain weight all require uh, parachute recovery systems. So that's one of the ways you can mitigate that. Um, 
I doubt if many of our octocopters have an advanced enough control system, but they have the power to fly if they lose a motor or lose a prop. And so being, you know, actually making them smart enough to recover from those situations is something I think we're very close to. Right. And But then, I, you know, that's one of those things where it's a controlled enough situation where I wonder what the advantages of a drone are versus a, a wired system. Otherwise, I'd also look True. for things like, you know, a dirigible system, something where, you know, okay, if you, if you lose contact with the vehicle or you know that it loses power or something like that it's still in the air you may not have control over it but it's also not coming down either right yeah i love dirigibles that's another thing i want to go flying someday yeah i mean they they're myself flying radio control ones too yeah i mean those can be great just because i imagine they're quite a bit quieter than uh than um you know octocopters or quadcopters and things like that so you can use them in applications issues i i do audio work as i said and so everyone asks me when are you going to fly a microphone on a drone well (laughs) not ways to go yeah cable underneath yeah otherwise you just get that uh you know the horde of angry bees sound or you know that yeah, although right. you know, once upon a time I heard someone, uh, they, they were thinking about, could you do like a uh, phase correction and eliminate the sound of the quadcopter by, by, by putting out of phase microphone systems onto it? You can certainly do better. I mean, you can just, I, I do a lot of uh, surround sound, and so you could put a multi-element microphone that's very good at canceling the sound from a certain direction. It would help, definitely. Um, or possibly and fly a parabolic mic like they use in the sidelines of football games. Who knows? Uh, we did have one uh, question from the chat that was a uh, really good one here from Caleb K asking, uh, how do they do the things like the massive displays at Disney using drones? Uh, are they not flying over a crowd? I mean, it seems like there's tons of room for dangerous drone wrecks. I'm not actually sure what, what displays he's referring to. I'm thinking maybe the, the ones where it's, it's like an LED array of, of a, a squadron of, or a you know, whole grouping of, of quadcopters. I was just at Disney last week. Actually, I didn't see them doing a horde of drones. That would have been fun. They do everything so big and so well. Um, But I certainly have seen large arrays of drones flying. It's my impression that kind of like fireworks, even though they're near people and you have to be careful, they're not technically over people. They really don't shoot fireworks displays right over people's heads usually, or it's a different level of security if they are. Uh, Interesting story. The way I got into the book writing business is a friend of mine who does fire art and so I'm fairly aware of all the regulations surrounding propane fire art and fireworks and the rest. Yeah. Uh, of course, then again, you know, you when you are dealing with something like Disney or, you know, a, a concert or something like that where there is a, you know, vehicle flying over the head there. I'm sure maybe if you dig into uh, what you as a ticket purchaser and your, your end user license agreement that we always uh, read thoroughly, there may be a thing in there that says, hey, I if I get hit by a small flying vehicle, I'm not going to be holding the, the host responsible. I know there was a controversy that I think Disney had managed to get a no-fly zone over their park so people don't buzz them constantly, but then they needed an exception to their own no-fly zone to fly their drones. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I saw uh, recently a, a photo of the, the Disney drone, um, and it looks like it's a little bit smaller than a Phantom, but approximately the same size. I think it uses the Intel 
real sense for yeah I, intel's doing a bunch of stuff in swarming drones they've sponsored several large exhibits i've seen yeah and, and i haven't seen the exhibit yet i've heard that it's i've heard it's good but i heard that it's it's not um the, the one review that i, I did see said it, it, it's it's good Oh, Disney will get there. Exactly. If anybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's some interesting problems involved in that. I mean, aside from you have to get everybody talking either with some ground station or very carefully calculated on which GPS you're talking to at the time. You know, if they lose a satellite, they need to all lose it together. Um, and then just the simple matter of if you have 40 or 50 drones and 10 minutes battery life, you've got to have a quick way to turn them all on. Oh yeah, and yeah, that's a good little point. Little things like that, and so they there's, it's not that easy to pull off those large displays. It fascinates me. Something else I want to go do. I think it'd be a really interesting thing to, and lots of people are specializing in carrying the light displays and what you do with the lights once you're up there. But really interesting work. Yeah. I mean, especially I, rem- I always get fascinated with the logistics of this stuff, using it in production. I remember when we saw the drone racing uh, last summer. Was it last summer? No, yeah, it was last summer. Um, uh, the one at the, uh, the Sacramento, uh, the California State Fairgrounds, uh, they had the aerial vehicles for their live stream, uh, all parrot AR drones, and uh, or the, um, the uh, Bebop drones, and just the right. logistics of keeping those things up in the air the entire time. Uh, you know, just cycling through batteries and cycling through aircraft, uh, you know. Yep. And those motors aren't really made for 100% duty cycle. They get warm and like to cool off. Yeah. Well, I think they had, you know, multiple multiple drones as well. Yeah. yeah. Those Bebop drones work really well for that. We had a few of those at our last Maker Fair that uh, Group Aerogistics brought. And they have really good optical flow sensing, and so they ran great indoors. They're super stable. You can just, you know, they'll do a tilting of an iPad or something. So you can hand that to any kid, and it's a very natural way for them to fly. And it feels very successful that things are so stable. You know, actually, that's a question I had for you. Um, what's your feelings about... Uh, Transmitters, sticks versus a smartphone or a tablet to control a quadcopter. I'm a sticks guy, and at that, I'm thumbs on sticks most of the time. I admit that when I, when I'm really doing what aerial photography I try to do, I sometimes get to fine motion using my fingers. I. I mean, I do control quadcopters off the phone, but only to say things like start the mission, land now, and so forth. Um, I haven't tried really flying that way. People say it's very natural and even easier for people to learn. Uh, One thing I'll say for people starting out in drones, a lot of the smallest drones are really kind of hard to fly because they come with such tiny, cheap transmitters. If you can find a tiny drone with a slightly bigger transmitter, it's much better. Um, This is the transmitter that I use on most of my small drones, like this guy, and it speaks DSM-2, which is what's integrated into this board, and you can get a tiny little $8 receiver, which receives it. And this is like a $15, $20 used transmitter. Uh, really cheap, and this one's got long enough sticks that you you have some travel. Uh, it, it's much easier to fly than the tiny ones. 
Yeah, Caleb K in our chat brings up a good point of, of in his thoughts on uh, sticks versus uh, using a phone is that you just with a phone you just don't get the feedback of where your fingers are in the controls. I mean, with the uh, when you're controlling with actual sticks, you get that spring-loaded feedback of, of where where you are in the control system, where the dead zone is, and, and what you're actually inputting to the, the vehicle. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it at yeah. all. Um, I, I suspect it's like someone recently said to me about a Prius. It's like you're just suggesting to the computer where the car ought to go. Yeah. <laughs> My friends love their Priuses, nothing against them, but... It's not a sports car, and you know, it's the same thing. I think we'll have different places. Uh, I love flying by sticks. I love actually flying, and most of the people I know who stay in the drone business, who really keep buying more and doing things with them, they, it's because they love to fly, and it's one of the easiest ways to get something up in the sky. Now. I think there are many places, aerial photography, search and rescue, you name it, where the farmers searching for their cows, I know, is a coming thing. They don't want to learn to fly, or at least that's not what they're doing now. They need to get a job done. And so these easier computer interfaces, you can say, up three feet. Now, two feet left is going to be quicker and easier to learn and get a job done that you couldn't do otherwise. Yeah, especially if they're doing things like surveying crops or, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, land surveillance or just, you know, getting a big bird's eye view of something is far more important than than uh, getting a really minute control. Uh, so lots of they lots say of chasing a cow is really easy with infrared today, except that you can't really tell the difference between, say, a wild boar and a cow by infrared easily. Yeah. <laughs> and then I heard another interesting story. I think it was uh, from DJI uh, that they were using their vehicles in Africa to help drive elephants away from, you know, once they identified where poachers were and where elephants were, they could use uh, drones to herd elephants, particularly away from poachers, because it made the sound of a bunch of angry bees, which is uh, something that elephants don't like very much. I've yet to meet an animal that likes the sound of a drone. Dogs yeah. always. I just have to get back up in the air when dogs walk by. They hate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I heard somewhere actually they were tracking bears in the woods with drones. And they happen to have medical collars on them. And they could tell that even if the bear never looks up, his heart rate would increase when the drone flew by. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I can at least speak to the notion of you know, flying one of the you know, tiny uh, – what's one of the other um, – I'm blanking on the name of the manufacturer, but one of those little tiny micro drones in my house, uh, my cat took one look at it and then uh, looked across and then she immediately swatted it out of the air. So she wasn't immediately afraid of it, but didn't like it much either. <laughs> yep. There's a, a video that I saw. This was probably about a year and a half ago. It goes back to the topic of gliders, but it was um, someone floating there, a video, aerial photo or video of someone flying over a field and there was these two horses and they were just um, prancing and playing and the the whole description of the video was about how the, the only way that that could have ever been possible was because the person filming was on a glider it was silent and the horses Ooh. had no idea that this person was above them uh, an airplane or a quadcopter or someone standing in the field would have been noticed um, instantly by the horses and they wouldn't have been um, just so carefree, and, and it's, it was just such a gorgeous and beautiful scene. And um, and you know, it's, it's interesting to think, you know, how how do you how do you mesh those worlds together, like this bear yeah. situation? Yeah, gliders and blimps and silent flight really does have an appeal. I'd love to try some of that. 
Although, I, another way at it, though not quite so romantic, I know the BBC Earth people, they do a lot of amazing aerials. They just have such good stabilization. They can run these super long telephoto lenses and get that stuff from two miles away. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's nice, too. <laughs> so we're getting kind of towards the end of our time here, but I, I did want to touch on the notion of um, what you see as some of the the places you would like to see drones and aerial vehicles go you know i mean obviously a lot of this stuff has evolved very quickly in the past five years what would you like to see come out of the next five years well well i don't really think any of the current generation are things i want to fly on i hope that somewhere five years sounds about right there'll be a drone i'm willing to fly on personally oh you mean actually Um, get on board Yes, yes. Get on and have it take me somewhere. Whether that's autonomous, you know, pilotless or that I'm flying it. I'd rather fly it, I think. But either way, Um, I suspect we'll see that same pilotless technology in a Google car start to come to small planes, especially like the BizJet world as a backup pilot. They flew a Learjet ground to ground 20 years ago or something. So they can do it, but it's going to get common, I bet you. Real air traffic control that just lets... so many people are afraid of the FAA coming into this business. And strangely, this is the thing I've learned from the burner world, uh, Burning Man people, that, you know, as anarchist as they may seem, much of what that world does occurs well within the law, carefully having gotten all the right permits for everything. And I think the same is true with the FAA. If I have an air traffic control system I can check in with for my drone, and they've talked about having the drones, say, talk to cell towers and report their position, that will let me go places I otherwise can't, because then I can coordinate more closely with the other traffic. I might be able to go higher, because I know there's not a plane in the area, instead of just limiting me to 400 and them to above five, which is the current rule. And so I, I think better coordination with the larger world of aviation will be good for me. Um, just many more commercial activities, uh, so much in agriculture is coming up, and teaching of kids, I hope, is a, a coming thing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of groundwork of, of legislature to get done to kind of finally smooth out the legality of, of what various operations are. I mean, uh, you know, for a while, it was tough, tough to do videography you know, for, or any other kind of commercial work with quadcopters because, you know, while you could uh, go flying with them, if you wanted to do any commercial work, you needed a special FAA exception. Now you just right. um, there's a, a test procedure. I still need to read up on all that different things you need to do to uh, to do that stuff commercially. Um, but that's yeah, they've regularized that process a great deal. So that's an improvement. And they need to do the same for the FPV race where the legality is sketchy still. Yeah. I mean, the FAA is letting them do it. It's, it doesn't, they're not busting people, but they could clean up those rules too. Yeah, it seems like mostly most of the time with those, they're getting around any legality by just flying within a, a caged environment so that you know, the vehicles can't get out of there and no other vehicles can get in. So it's, it's kind of a closed loop system where uh, nobody's going to harm anyone. Uh, and that seems to be right. a decent uh, way to get around that so far. Yeah, I don't know of any injuries in drone racing yet. Yeah. And I think the drone racing world will become more and more interesting. It's, it's so much fun to because you can experience the same thing as the pilot. 
Right. And I think that's – we're also coming back to the autonomous car stuff. There's uh, – well, there's uh, things like RoboRace and other uh, autonomous car racing systems uh, and series uh, coming online. And I think there's a lot of question about how interesting that's going to be as a sport, not just as a, as a technical exercise. I think FPV drone racing is a, is an interesting half-step where you, you still have a person you can root for, but they are also able to – do really superhuman things where they don't have to worry about you know injury of the driver or anyone else really um which are you know kind of the maybe the best of both worlds or at least a compromise between the two yeah and i think i think one of the interesting things i with the fpv world i wrote, I wrote about this in make uh, a couple issues back um i i think that there, there's still a challenge with the uh the size and the scale of of the racing rigs um, you know, I, I grew up racing RC cars, and that's super fun when you're doing it. It's pretty fun to watch these, but you know, there's, there's even the other night I watched drone racing on ESPN, and that's pretty cool. But you know, after a while, it's, I want to see something bigger. I think, I think that we all have this innate. What are the stakes? That we're, we're watching, <laughs> yeah, yes, you know, and and I would, and I, and, I, and this is what I wrote about. I want, uh, I want to see the world get to a place where, uh, in the FPV racing world, that we've got rigs the size of Volkswagen bugs flying around a five mile track in the desert somewhere. And if one of them yeah. falls, it's catastrophic. And, yeah. and that, you know, that sounds, I, I will sit in bleachers with binoculars to watch that. That yeah. sounds exciting. Well, and I we, mean, it also we have precedent for that kind of racing. I, I went to the Reno air races for many years there and there's a class. It's almost exactly that size and type of plane. Now they're flown by humans now, but people die occasionally. And I don't know, but what it would be almost exciting if no one was in them and nobody ever died. Yeah, that yeah. sounds better. Yeah. And also, I mean, having larger vehicles also helps the commercial aspects of, of it being a sport, because when you have a larger vehicle, that means you have a bigger canvas for sponsors to put their logo on. Absolutely. So that yeah. certainly yeah. helps. Uh, make those all those production gears turn and, and make the sport more possible. Yeah. Um, so, so David, as we're kind of winding down here, where can people find out more about you other than obviously uh, your book, uh, which is Make Drones? Um, it's written by you, and it'll cover everything that we've been talking about today in a lot more detail and with a lot more. Um, and I also, there's a companion website, makedronesbook.com, which is where you can go to, for example, download the code, and I'll upload any errata as I find about the projects. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to build the next version of the visible drone. I think I have some improvements to that one. And... Um, you know, I have a few blog posts on improvements I've made. Um, people may have noticed uh, the cover of the book shows the large drone with a camera, a couple of other things, video transmitter gear that aren't actually described in the book. So I'll go on to describe some additional stuff there. You should be able to get in touch with me directly on that site if you want to. And I'll try to answer anyone who writes to me. Uh, be on the web, any like Twitter, Instagram or anything like that uh, people can use to connect with you? Um, I'm less good at those than I am at straight email, so probably the best bet is to go to that website and find me by email. Brilliant. Uh, and otherwise, uh, Mike, what else we got uh, coming down the, the pipeline here? Um, I know that, well, we have our um, – well, our very next live stream coming up later on this week, and that is tied in with uh, our latest issue of the magazine, the, the Digital Fabrication Guide. That's right. Yeah, we'll be chatting with Matt Stoltz, who is the uh, the, the Digital Fabrication lead and editor for Make. Uh, he has, over the last few years, uh, put together the, the testing team to test out all the latest in 
the 3D printers and CNC machines, laser cutters, etc. And um, we put out sort of the, the industry standard as far as um, what what type of uh, processes we put into testing and recommending the newest machines. Yeah, and that magazine that's out on newsstands now, so that is right. Uh, you can go and. Possibly that one. Do you have a copy of it here? So keep an eye out for this uh, if you're interested in 3D printing, CNC milling, laser cutting, vinyl cutting, uh, or any other kind of desktop digital fabrication. Keep an eye out for that, and uh, and we will uh, get into all those discussions with uh, with Matt and uh, and and chat with him. And it looks like uh, we have one more. Um, uh, not really actually much of a question, uh, but just more commentary about chatting about drone racing and actually drone combat racing, which is uh, – that is also a real thing. Uh, Game of Drones. Uh, Google that. That's uh, a competition that we do at, at Maker Fairs and other uh, places where uh, – Drones just try and take each other out of the air, and there's the only rule is there, there aren't any rules. Right. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> mostly just because yeah. it's actually really, really difficult to get these relatively tiny vehicles to collide in midair. So they have all kind of interesting yeah. strategies, nets and streamers and anything else to yeah. catch the rotors up to try and take each and other out. They're still making that one up at the very beginning. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, I want to thank David uh, for joining with us and, and writing an incredible book uh, about building your own drone and, and understanding the aeronautics of these things. Because um, uh, it's a lot of fun. There's a, It's a really deep well to sink yourself into, but uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun stuff to learn yeah. in there as well. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Great job, David. I, 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 thank you. I, even as a, someone that likes to think that I know quite a bit about this space, I learned... Just, just in the first couple chapters, an incredible amount of new knowledge. Well, and I learned a lot writing it too, which is part of the exercise. It's, uh, you know, you get to learn a few things you didn't know, correct a few facts that I thought I knew, and meet a bunch of new people. It's a, it's a great way to learn about something. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Mike. And uh, will you be joining us later on this week uh, with Matt Stoltz? I'm going to try to. Brilliant. All right. And uh, thank you for all for watching. And be sure to check back with us. Uh, check our Twitter feed to be sure. I want to say that uh, live stream is going to be happening on Thursday at 3 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m., something like that. Uh, I think that's the time. Of course, that is Pacific time. Uh, so, uh, But someday on sometime on Thursday and, and check Twitter uh, to get the up, latest update on that and uh, thank you again David and we will My be pleasure. seeing all of you again very soon thanks for watching and uh, listening bye bye <laughs>